Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. My guest is Vanessa Veselka, whose latest novel is The Great Offshore Grounds. Earlier novel, Zazen, was with a small press in 2011 and has just been reissued. So let's go back, since we're talking about the two books here. It seemed to me, in reading Zazen, and looking at your own biography, that there is a lot that is autobiographical, hidden, but there anyway. So we'll talk a little about how you became a writer, because there's also that huge, nearly decade gap between the two books. Now, you grew up in New York, the daughter of journalist Linda Ellaby, correct? Yes. How did having a celebrity affect your early life? And do you think it played some kind of role in these two books? I don't think it played a role in the two books. It definitely affected my life. So in that sense, you know, it plays a role in everything that I do. It gave me a deep distrust of charisma. And I think that shows up in Zazen and a concern for what that can be. I think that it gave me a very clear idea about how people gather around charisma I think those are the ways it affected my thinking as a writer. You know, I left home very early. So there was also that in the mix. So I had seen a lot of different places. And I think my mother has a really extraordinary career in journalism. It wasn't the period that it is now where people were just paid massive amounts of money, you know. And so she was a, a true journalist. And you know, there was definitely her celebrity in a lot of ways in certain periods of time outweighed the sort of financial world that I grew up in. And then I left home at 15. And so things were ve- a very different set of circumstances at that point. She's kind of regarded now as part of second wave feminism. But I think from your perspective as a kid, you wouldn't necessarily have seen that or did you? I think I was always very, very, you know, partially through her in a feminist conversation. And so in terms of second wave feminist, I think of her as a feminist. I mean, I'm very familiar with second, third, and, you know, can argue fourth wave feminist. And I've never found in talking to her about those things, I mean, there are a few areas that there might be a bit of a difference in terms of how we might look at one thing or another, but they're they're very minor. One of the reasons I ask about all of that is because parenting plays quite a role in both books. Uh, In Zazen, we have a very radical parental couple and a very, very strong mother. And in The Great Offshore Grounds, we have a very famous and wealthy dad and two mothers, actually, both of whom play a very major role, which means that your relationship with your parents, while different from these, certainly the idea of how parents raise kids is a big part of your books. Yeah. I'm not being coy here when I say that, you know, fiction is fiction. 
it really is. You know, my mother was not the basis for Cyril and Offshore Grounds, nor the basis of Grace in Zazen. I think that the different characters show up in different aspects, but I think the the issue and the thinking around parenting is, in my mind, also very tied to what's inherited, what's history. I think a lot of times philosophically in some ways, and I think that, you know, what is the sort of progenitor philosophy that this character is like coming out of, the belief system they have or the things that they're reacting against? In some ways, if Grace was anybody, it was my father. The other thing that that comes through in all of those relationships, which I do think mirrors my own, there are discussions of ideas between the children and the parents and sort of ideologies and ideas and a sort of a parody of the relationship. And I think that's true with my parents as well. Vanessa Veselka, you said you left home at 15, running away, just disappearing. How did that work? And the reason I ask that is because both of these books deal with displaced people, people who have left home and have turned their backs. Yeah, I don't know that Zazen does as much, but definitely Offshore Grounds has elements throughout. Yeah, I mean, I left home at 15 because I felt it was the best thing to do. And I had a very intense next year, year and a half. I mean, it was intense for a while, but I was more in and out of contact after that. And the first year was uh, extremely intense. I hitchhiked about 20,000 miles in the United States, living largely in truck stops, sleeping in the back of trucks. I've actually written about that as well. You know, I live in Portland now, and it's always kind of a, a, a reminder to me that, you know, I was homeless here in, you know, 1984, living under the Burnside Bridge. And I walk past now what is a fancy sort of promenade around the river, and I can still see where the hobo jungles were that I lived in. And then I hitchhiked probably about 15,000 miles in Turkey. And I mean, not just in Turkey, that would have been many circles, but you know, through Europe and Turkey, Yugoslavia, all before the wall came down. So I think I, I really did come to experience what it means to be indigent in a lot of ways and uh, a lot of different ways that people survive and what deals they cut. And it's given me, a, in terms of writing, you know, I think one of the things I try to bring to all my work, I think it's much more evident in the offshore grounds because of the kind of book it is, is I really believe that one of the things that I see that's different for a lot of Americans is there's a lot of people who are just inherent philosophers. They are inherently philosophers. You talk to somebody at a bodega, you talk to somebody down the street, and within a minute or two, strangers, I mean, you know, a lot of times they're going to start giving you their take on the world. You know, there's the, have, the haves and the have-nots. We know where we are, right? We're the people who make sense. That's the sort of narrative you hear a lot. You know, I, I don't want the characters that I write that are on the margins in different ways to be used as ambience. I don't want them to be used for just the greater development of the character. You know, I, I like to believe that they have their own reasons, philosophies, belief systems, and thoughts, and humor for being where they are and self-awareness. And I think that that's something that I learned from traveling and being in different states myself. The many trips that Cheyenne takes in her car, let's not necessarily put it that way, but the many trips she takes across country seem 
to resonate with what you're saying about your own life. And it seems to me in reading the great offshore grounds that a lot of the indigent life you spent during those years finds its way kind of through the back door in terms of the lives of both major characters, Cheyenne and Livy, and I guess in a way perhaps to Essex, the char- mm-hmm. their brother. Yes. When you were creating these characters, did you know where they were going? No. No, I never do. I described it once as thinking, you know, I kind of know they're, they're, once I start the very beginning of writing, I, I almost know their they're Greek destinies. Like, I kind of know the emotional arc I can feel. It's more of a tone that I feel. It's not anything I can put into words. You know, when you start to describe a character, you are, you see their their flaws and their desires, and and both of those things have tendencies, you know, directionality. You know, for me, I can feel that, but I don't know how it's going to come together. I try to really work as far as I can in before I know anything. You know, I get really far in before I know what's happening at the end, how things are going to move, where they're going to end up. And I try to do as little planning as possible because I think, you know, novels take a long time to write, at least I take a long time to write them, that you need your own curiosity to pull you through when you're tired of it. And if you already know everything that's going to happen and you've planned it all out, there's not a lot of curiosity left. I suspect that's one of the reasons George R. R. Martin has not finished his Game of Thrones books, because he already knows the ending. He knows where it's going. Why write it at all? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's my feeling anyway. You know, one of the things that happened with my daughter when she was very young, when she was three or four, she would do this thing that drove me nuts. And she would, it drove everybody around nuts, where you'd ask her to do something very, very simple. And she'd go, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. She'd just have this meltdown sometimes going randomly, going, I can't, I can't. And it was like always stuff that she could clearly do. And I was like, of course you can. I can't, I can't, I can't. And I finally just said, I was very tired of it. And I was just like, what do you mean you can't? This is something you do every day. What do you mean you can't? And she was just in tears and she goes, I can't wanna. And I was like, oh, I understand that. And so when I think about what it would feel like to actually sit down and try to like, you know, say, I know all the marks I need to make. Let me just like type on through this thing. I can't wanna, like, I can't even imagine. The other side of that, of course, are the dead ends where you get to a certain point and you go, ah, how do I save this or do I just abandon this? It sounds like this could have happened for both books at one point or another. Yeah, I think it really could have. I mean, Zazen took me, you know, so I'm not a fast writer, but I'm a very uh, diligent practice. So what that means is, you know, I write probably between 400 and 600 words a day, and it may take me five hours to get those like to get what I want out of that. I do tend to tinker a lot with paragraphs. So I have to make up for that time. It'd be fine if I was a short story writer, but I have to make up for that time by putting more time in. So, you know, when I was writing Zazen, I was writing, I figured it out at one point it took me, because people would ask me, how long did it take you? And it took me three, three and a half years of writing probably 
three to six hours a day for six days a week. You know, so it was, uh, you know, longer for the offshore grounds, but there were some reasons there were gaps that were longer than others. Yeah, but I'm not a fast writer. Great offshore grounds also is a tremendous amount of research in it, which we'll get to in a moment. But I want to go back to your life. Vanessa Veselka, along with being a writer, you spent some time as a kid as a sex worker, a musician, you've been in bands, you were a student of paleontology, as is the main character, kind of, in Zazen. Uh, you spent more time recently as a union organizer. You've done all of this. What brought you in your 20s or 30s to becoming or attempting to become a writer? It definitely wasn't in my 20s. Music was really the heart of everything I cared about for a very long time in my life. And I traveled and I played on my own and I played in bands and I toured and I, you know, I did all of those things. Up until uh, I eventually, you know, wrote something intentionally, for the most part, I used writing to get myself out of trouble. I mean, I got into college when I was 15, and then I got in multiple other times. And the reason was I wrote great letters. I knew how to present myself through writing, but they were mostly letters of apology a lot of times, you know, how I got through things. You know, Rimbaud has this great letter he writes from jail to, I think, Georges Isambard, and he says, Dear sir, what you advise me not to do, I did. And then he goes on to say, take me home to live with you, and you know, I'll be grateful forever. I, I really saw writing as a means of you know, persuasion, but not as an artistic pursuit for myself. I mean, I did keep journals since I was five. So I was, you know, I was raised in a house where my mother was a writer, my father, who I did not grow up with, but I also knew that he had written a lot at one point. It, you know, it was everywhere. And so it was something I very much took for granted. When it changed and became more an endeavor for me was really in my 30s. I wrote my first short story at 36. I wrote like four short stories and they all got published and in, you know, pretty cool places for me. And then I um, started writing Zazen right about in the middle of that. It all kind of moved fairly fast once I started writing, but it was music up until then that I had put my energy. And I think I got to a point with music where I realized that I was constantly trying to use the medium for something that it wasn't well suited for. The stories and the things I wanted to tell, the the impulses I had, they just didn't fit in the size of a song. And I think what's interesting to me now is now that I've written a lot, is when I think about music, I wouldn't even try to use it that way. You know, I would use it and do use it for a completely other thing. But I don't think I understood that at the time. What was your bands and can people find them online? You know, they can't really. I mean, there's one of them that is easily found called the Pinkos, uh, Pinkos, like, you know, lefty communist Pinkos, not to be confused with Los Pinkos who came out later. You know, you can, I've seen it on Spotify, the, fir the first and only record we did. You know, I know it's on Spotify and, it, and maybe there's some copies floating out in the ether. The other band I was in, Bell, I was in for years, but frankly, you know, we lived in the time period right between when vinyl went out the first time and when um, and CDs went out 
when streaming was just starting and the internet was too new for anybody to afford to have websites. So there's kind of this three or four year period in the middle of the 90s where unless you were very, very big or in vinyl on certain labels, you know, you just weren't, it wasn't getting captured. So whatever is out there is not representative of what we were actually doing at different times, but it's very little out there. And they were both, you know, fairly innocuous names that uh, there are a lot of other things that sound like that name or are that name at this point. So In Seattle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Pinkos was my band that I had with Steve Moriarty, who was in the Gits with Mia Zapata, who was tragically murdered. And we made a record on Empty Records that I know is on Spotify at this point. And I think it's still available from Empty, but Empty is Empty's pretty much closed down. It still has some reach, but it's pretty much closed down. Vanessa Veselka, let's get back a little to your writing. What prompted Zazen and what prompted the story of Zazen? Before we went on the air, you mentioned something about Arab Spring. Yeah. You know, the Arab Spring didn't prompt Sazen because it came afterwards, but it was one of the things that when the book came out felt like I was, you know, I was in the zeitgeist a little bit. And I think zeitgeist is important with Sazen because it sort of continues to feel that way a lot of times. But at the time when I started writing it, I think it was a real shift in my ability and understand. It was sort of a big leap as a writer for me, which was the character of Della is very, you know, what they would say, voice-driven. And she's very particular in how she sees and names the things in the world. And when I started writing her voice, it just was like a rocket, you know, and it just ate the world up. I would say from the first pages, the first probably four to 10 pages, I think I probably wrote, you know, almost straight from day one with very little difference. And it was her voice. And I think I understood at that point that I didn't have to play by certain rules of literary fiction, or I didn't have to, like, I could just write freely. And that her voice had all of those freedoms where, in some sense, I think of it as a polyphonic voice, but there's a section of it where I remember very early on going, nobody is necessarily going to understand what I just wrote in this particular way here because you know it's like an association chain where you're missing some links you'd have to know everything to know how the association chain worked or it's using very uh, you know specific language to specific things about paleontology or it's you know all of these things and i kind of realized that that's a dial i mean voice in itself is a dial and i am a musician and i think in terms of music so i think about amplifiers and i think about you know compression and I think about mid-range and gain and all of those things. And, you know, the more intense a narrator is, it's kind of like in a fight with the length of the book. Just like people we know, the more intense a narrator is, really value them, but you may not want to spend yeah, a lot of time with them is a lot of time with them. So I think that volume, you know, she has a pretty high intensity. Even going to 256 pages or whatever it is now in the new edition took a lot because she's intense. But I, I had to make a call early on how much, and I think every writer does this one way or another, how much do I let what's natural to the character's knowledge and the specificity of the world just run? And how much do I sort of play with this 
making sure that the reader can follow along. And, you know, you can go all the way to one side where you lay everything out for the reader completely. And sometimes that has the downside of being ham-handed and feeling like an aside to the audience. Or you can go all the way to the other side and just say, I don't care if anybody understands me at all. You know, maybe people who like to be locked out of a book will enjoy it, you know? With Della, I did come to accept that probably 15 to 20% of what she said might be inaccessible at different times. What I found was that she acted impulsively, and I never always understood, or a lot of the time, she never really gives a reason for doing it. She just does it, and you have to kind of accept, okay, she's Mm -hmm. just doing it. That makes sense? Yeah, and I think that that was one of the big ahas I had in writing her. I mean, when the book came out, we were still very much in a time, and it's not like we're not now, but it was really worse. I'm not talking about the politics. I'm talking about something I was going to say about feminism, which is the time when the book came out, female characters for a long time have not been allowed to just act in the world. Their motivations are sort of supposed to be spelled out in a much more complete way. We're supposed to know that they are emotionally available to us as readers. We're supposed to see them cry when, you know, so that we can sort of feel like they have an emotional scape. Where we don't demand that of male characters a lot of times, where they can be completely opaque and we cast upon them the male mystique, you know. And it, that's really been true in literature for a long time. And I think in the last, since Zazen came out, not because of Zazen, there's been a lot of discussion about this. And I think there's a lot of women writers who have been able to finally like push on this issue a lot. But I think that sort of Della being a character who acts and you're right inside her and she's very loud. And so I think that you do have to kind of decide you're okay with going for a ride on how she sees the world. I think the other thing is that Della is emotionally affected by ideas and by philosophies, politics, or ideologies, you know, ideas, and has a very deep emotional engagement with them. And I think that's another place where male characters traditionally can be intense around ideas, but female characters have been traditionally sort of, you know, the ideas that you're supposed to only be biography, that it's just the emotions. That idea that that female characters are emotionally available to the reader at all times is a gendered idea. And so I think with Zazen, it felt very freeing to have a character who was just acting in accordance with where she was at. But I have also heard for at times where people are like, I don't understand her. How many times have we seen male characters and we don't understand them, but we just accept that they're going to go off and be alpha males. Right. You finished the book, and how long did it take to get published? And when it was published, it was published by a small press. Yeah. I finished one version in 2009. I tried to get it published, didn't have any takers. I printed up 100 chapbook editions for friends and just gave them out. And uh, some of those got passed around. And one went to Jay Babcock, who ran Arthur, and he loved it. So he wanted to put it up online. So we did a thing for a month where I posted it, a chapter, I think a chapter every day. Maybe it was every few days. I can't remember the rhythm. 
And people were downloading it, printing it, reading it. And that took a certain amount of effort because, you know, it wasn't in a web form that was easy to read or read on the phone or any of that. And then during that year, which would have been 2000, end of 2009, because it was summer of 2010 that, no, maybe it was, yeah, summer of 2010 is when Richard uh, Nash from, uh, formerly of Soft Skull, who was doing something called Red Lemonade. He and I had spoken. I didn't know him before at all. I had sent him an email sort of out of the blue, and uh, he had agreed to read the book. And then he decided to make it the first novel that he was releasing on his new small press. And that was remarkably exciting for me. I had been turned down by everybody, and including all the hipster presses. It was all closed doors. And I knew that Richard really liked the book because I knew that not only was he saying yes, but the fact that he would make it the first release on something that was new that he was doing and meant something to him meant that he really believed in it too. And he is a good, good friend to this day. In fact, I stayed at his apartment about four days ago in New York, you know, and he has been a huge champion of my work. I guess after the success of Great Offshore Grounds, publisher Vintage wanted to look at Zazen. Did you revise it for this new edition? Not really. I mean, we read through to see if there were things last minute. There had been two chapter 28s for the entire life of the book. (laughs) (laughs) So there were things like that we did. There were a couple of tweaks here and there where something that made sense in 2011 you know, just didn't, it didn't ring right or feel right in the way that we talk about things. Now, there were some things about like, I'll give you an example. There's a paragraph when Della sees a person who she knew is one gender and is now another gender at a sex party. And in that paragraph, she doesn't know their new name. And she is sort of taking it in as it comes. And she's sort of switching pronouns till she gets to the bottom of the paragraph because it's internal, right? Like she's, it's coming in. That makes perfect sense to me. And I think it's an experience that many, many people have. But in the initial one, the name of the person from earlier was used because it's the only name she knew. So we kind of had a back and forth about it because I can sit there and say, well, it's natural, it's real, and it's logical that somebody who is seeing somebody for the first time that they have only known under one name would, you know, have that thought process. On the other hand, Dead naming is a very charged thing for a lot of people, and there it wasn't a big point in the book. It was it was like it, it had almost no. I mean, it was a passing thing, so I decided to take it out because it was just kind of like no reason to cause harm in that. You know, no reason to do it. It was now, however, if that had been two pages and not a paragraph, if that had been something that had been given the space just to not to be politically you know, on point with the times, but literally if that transition that Della was doing was something that was important to the book or, you know, had more space, I might've chosen differently. Let's move on from Zazen. There's nine years in there. And from what I read in various places about Vanessa Veselka, you kind of took a lot of time off, but you couldn't have taken much time off because The Great Offshore Grounds is a very detailed book with a lot of research that would have taken years and years to write. So what was going on then? I didn't take time off in the way that, you know, I felt like I was always working. 
2012, I was still very much, you know, I was writing some nonfiction articles. I wrote a big, like 9,000 word piece for GQ that got a lot of traction. And that was a new world for me. So I started writing long form nonfiction. Uh, I did some stuff that was at the Atavist, and I had done some stuff that was at the Atlantic. I had initially had this thinking that I think a lot of writers have, and some make it work. Oh, I'll write nonfiction to get the finances to support my fiction. But I found that, you know, I'm just such an obsessive writer, I don't write fast. And so whatever I earned in that world for the most part, you know, once I got paid would just cover the amount of time it took me to write plus one month and I'd be back in the same position. So I think I lost about a year and a half sort of chasing nonfiction around. There was also maybe even a little bit longer, there was a potential you know, and if you really want to go down a rabbit hole and you're a writer, like, welcome to Hollywood. You know, there was a, a thing with a, a script TV thing potential that, you know, went on for way too long and took a lot of work. And so I sort of was learning how to live as a writer and what time means and what, you know, how, how do you do all of these things? How do you put it together to, to put work into the world? And so the novel started, I had started it in early, you know, maybe end of 2012, early 2013. But then I took a year and a half, you know, there was probably about a year and a half to two years in there that got eaten up by other forms of nonfiction and um, television things that didn't really pan out. Vanessa Veselka, at the beginning of the great offshore grounds, you had these two women who were raised by one mother, but they didn't know which one was her child and which one was another woman's child by the same father. I would guess that that entire introduction, including the marriage of their father, came very early on, and then you needed to take them somewhere. Is that about where you finally said, okay, now what do I do? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely true that that the marriage came very early on and that the story of that came very early on. I do tend to write pretty much, you know, front to back. Those were the first parts, so they came first. Now, I didn't do a lot of classic research. I, you know, I rely a lot on things I do already know or interests I already have. The difference in this, there were two areas in this novel that I definitely didn't, you know, research on. Can I guess? Let's see. Fishing boats in Alaska and 18th to 19th century sailing ships in modern day world. Yeah. Then and one more. I have never been a Marine. Okay. That's three. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I had lived in Southeast Alaska and I'd known a lot about the Clinket for a long time, and I knew the environment and the atmosphere and the weather in my bones. All of those things were there. I had not worked on a fishing boat. I knew early on that Livy was going to have to navigate something. I mean, this is how my mind works. I knew nothing else. I'm like, Livy's going to have to navigate something without modern electronics. I don't know why I knew that so early on. It wasn't attached to anything. And I had just thought, you know, modern day sailing boat or, or something. You know, I, ha I didn't even know why. Um, but as I began to think this through, and I was thinking initially about something that was more of a small sailing craft, and I think I probably was relating it to like celestial navigation. 
And when I was thinking about that, I was talking to a friend who's another musician, and I was sitting there and I said, you know, I gotta, I know nothing about this. I get seasick. I mean, turns out that's not entirely true, but the only time I'd been on a, like, you know, ferry, I rode ferries and would occasionally get seasick, but it was a little different on the tall ship. So, you know, I was talking to him and he's, I said, I need to figure out like, what is it like to sail without, you know, any kind of navigation or any kind of, and he said, um, you should go work on a tall ship. And it turned out he had been a tall ship sailor. I'd never known this for like 10 years. And I've since gotten to know many tall ship sailors, but he said, you know, why don't you contact the tall ship of America, I think tall ships of America or um, the boat that he had been on, the ship that he had been on, which was the US brig Niagara. And so again, you know, coming back to my writing skills being used to convince people of things, you know, I wrote a very persuasive letter to um, the lovely people at the U.S. Brig Niagara and said, I know that you charge money for people to come on as a sail trainee, and I know that your season has already started, and I don't have money, and you're already going, but can I come anyway? And they said yes. I, I came to, you know, they were particularly under crude on that summer, which actually ended up being perfect for me because the comedy of not having quite enough people to do what you needed to do, <laughs> they ran a really tight ship. And they were like, you know, the ways that I take the, the tall ship in the book and sort of pull it apart as like one of the worst of ships, I only know how to do that because I saw one of the best ships. But I did spend a month working on a tall ship. And, you know, it's very hard work, particularly if you're under crewed. And, and it was very hard work. And it was a big learning curve. And uh, it was all sorts of interesting. I had never known what it was like to be on a fishing boat in Alaska or being on a tall ship. On the other hand, I've never been in the army, but I would assume that what Essex experiences is pretty normal. I mean, you did research on it, of course. Yeah. I mean, and what I did in both those cases, I mean, with the fishing boat stuff, I mean, I talked to harbor masters and things like that to figure out about, you know, certain details. But it was a combination of friends who gave me little bits of information that sort of sparked my humor or imagination. And then I had a good friend whose name is Kirsten. I actually put that name in the book for her, <laughs> who was working as a fisherman in Alaska and had and also was doing salmon tickets out in Neck Neck and other places. So I used photos she had and I asked her a lot of questions for diagramming. Most of what you need as a writer is if my character is standing here, what do they have in their reach and what can they see from where they stand? That's 90% of what you need. And part of the problem is I'd always intended to write about you know the fishing boat side of it. But when I got off the Niagara, I realized the only thing I knew about sailing was now tall ships from the 18th century and 19th century. So that's where the tall ship came in. I did not know I was going to write about a tall ship until I got off one and went, okay, that's now the only thing I know. Okay, that's Livy. And I guess Cheyenne's adventures kind of can come off from what you know, mm -hmm. and where you went, including perhaps a visit to the kind of commune she winds up at for a time, the retreat. Yeah. Those kind of places, you know, I've been aware of them for years and years and years. I didn't grow up around or in them. 
But I think, again, that question of charisma comes in there. Bringing in Essex, their adopted brother. First of all, one thing I noticed, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe I missed something, is that you never say what race he is, but I got the idea he might have been black. You know, he's not in my mind. I have an image of him. In my mind, he is white. He's never known, quote, what he is. So in some ways, I think I've never known what he is. But no, I, I'm, I'm curious what made you think, was it because I didn't mention his race or was it because, you know, the uh, Marines and the army and the environment he's come from is often identified with people of color? Like, what was it? I think it was more the environment that he came from. And also, I did not want to get caught in the idea that because I'm white right. and you don't mention somebody as being white or black or any color, that maybe that was a conscious decision on your part not to let us know. And therefore, I could imagine him whatever I wanted. On some level, I didn't want all the characters to be white. Yeah, I can understand that. No, that's not the case in Zazen. I think in the case of these characters, not all the world that they're around is white. And it is a lot more diverse than that. But with Essex, I mean, it was important for me that the sisters were white because I think they have this, like the way their mother has this narrative that she doesn't actually want to be attached. She wants to create her own space. And that's part of her mythology or her flaws in a lot of ways too. I mean, I think there's benefits and drawbacks, but she has this kind of way that she exists within American history that, you know, she carves out sort of her own, I mean, when they're very little, she tells them they're immigrants, you know, they don't even, I mean, this is a thing you learn very late in the book that has almost no impact. Uh, but, you know, she, she told them they were first generation and they came from the old country. And, and for Kirsten, that means, you know, they came from a lot of bad old ideas and we're starting again. My sense with that was that both of the mothers and the father exhibit white privilege. Enormously. I mean, I think with Kirsten, Kirsten is, you know, you can argue that every white person has white privilege. I think with Kirsten, she comes from a very different economic background than either Cyril or Justine. She is much more white, quote, lower class, working class, poor background, who's out beyond the suburbs, who comes at a very early age into Seattle. That's where she comes from. She doesn't come from a lot of economic stability in any way. And so I think that she exhibits white privilege, but I think she's also very radical in her belief about feminism and, you know, different cultures. But I mean, then she also named Cheyenne Cheyenne, right? And there's a sort of not, it's a bit tongue in cheek about that, you know, when, when this other person asked Cheyenne if she's Native American and she's like, no, we're not anything, you know, no. And it's just like her mom thought they might be at one point and unfortunately named her Cheyenne in that moment. You know, there is that. <laughs> I think with uh, Justine and with Cyril, it's a really extreme myopathy, a way of looking at race that's just really, everybody's got their perfect little place that seems so right, you know, and it's just like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> with Essex, I think partly his background. And again, it's that you don't mention it. And I kept thinking, is he 
white or is he not? And I, I didn't come to any conclusion. But one thing that happens, as you know, is that when you're reading a book, you're actually seeing a movie in your head. Yes. And when certain things are left out, it points to the idea that can I visualize somebody as well as the author wants to let me? Can I visualize them? Mm-hmm. And in my head, I visualized him white. And then halfway through, I'm going, maybe not. Right. I like that. I thought in different times, you know, this has gone around in writing circles. Like, do you, you know, what happens when you write a character of color and you're a white person and you point that out in this way or that way? And like, there's all sorts of discourse about who gets to write what, how, and how much, what gets said. I wasn't thinking of those things, particularly in this. I was, I think, very much thinking about particular types of people I knew in the Pacific Northwest, not like there are in other places, but there are a lot of, you know, generationally poor white people. And it is also a part of the picture here, not the only one. The other thing I was curious about, of course, because politics is so extreme in our world, who these characters would have voted for. It struck me, for example, that uh, the main characters in Great Offshore Grounds, well, Livy would have not voted for Trump. Livy would have not voted. That's right. Cheyenne, probably not either. Cheyenne would have voted if she woke up that day and was near, uh, you know, <laughs> near a poll. <laughs> but, but, you know, she would have had an opinion even if she didn't show up for a, the poll. Her opinion would have been not Trump. And Essex would have done whatever Cheyenne did. Like, I think that probably the only one who would consciously vote in a very clear way with determined practice would be Kirsten. And she would have voted for Bernie. Vanessa Veselka, I read in your biography that I guess during the last couple of years while you were revising Great Offshore Grounds, you worked as a union organizer. This is during the Trump administration, right? Well, I am actually working currently and about to step down as a union organizer. Right after I finished the bulk of revisions, I can't remember, maybe it was just during the last part of the revising, I did take a job two and a half years ago, almost three years ago, uh, working for a union, which was stuff I, uh, that was work I'd done before. I worked with a healthcare workers union called 1199. And the local I worked with was uh, SEIU 1199 Northwest in Seattle, several years, a long time ago. That was very, very powerful in my life and uh, definitely made an indelible mark. And then during the Trump years, and partly out of a sense of desperation and uselessness, I think, you know, I was feeling very useless as a writer at that time. I do have skills as an organizer and I do um, have um, vision and opinion and thoughts about that and know some of the craft of doing that work. And so I got asked to do, basically I was going to do like six months as a field organizer on a particular campaign. And, you know, I got into that job and here we are almost three years later and this is how long it's taken me to step down. But I got the great privilege during that time to not only learn and grow a lot myself, and have, you know, my own leadership stretched a lot. But also, you know, I got the great 
privilege to work with nursing home workers during COVID. The last couple of years, 18 months, 19 months, you know, it's just been where I would I hear people talking sometimes about, you know, how do you stay entertained, <laughs> you know, when you're in lockdown at different times, it's just been like 60, 70 hours a week. And obviously that's what that workforce is doing. And it's just really humbling to be around people doing such hard, hard work for so little money and so much danger. And, and I just mean also before COVID, just the sort of like simple and yet brutal indignities that, you know, we, we put on people. How do you respond to the anti-vaxxers? It's really interesting because I've had to work with a lot of that. I mean, I've looked at the numbers of vaccinations and I can see where they are. You know, it's not surprising that the places where there's a lot of disinformation have lower numbers and communities that have less trust, uh, particularly some of the communities of color in a lot of places have lower numbers. And you're going to see that in the nursing home. So I think a lot of people have this idea about like, how could these people of all people and, you know, Mostly the vaccination rate is fairly high, but you do see places where it's not, and you know, those workers are not going to be there. I think the part of me that is, you know, liberal left can look from the outside and go like, how could you ever believe that? Or how could you have a problem with X? And I do have those feelings. I've also know that there's a great deal of variety inside what we call anti-vax. There are real anti-vaxxers, and then there are a lot of people who are vaccine hesitant. And a lot of times they've just not had the information. To lump them all into one thing is, you know, I've had to learn a lot about that, you know, and have a lot of conversations about that. And so I think that it is also in an industry right now in Oregon, in the nursing homes and the assisted living facilities, our demographics are showing that it's um, majority 35 and under. And so what you're talking about is a female workforce that is right in the peak childbearing age group. So if you look at sort of the ways that disinformation and stuff like that around infertility and stuff has been spread around, you can imagine how there might be an impact with is sometimes low information. You know what I mean? Like you can imagine why there might be that impact there. So I'm actually in this moment in time, given all those things, much more encouraged by the numbers I see. It also means that that because of your role as union organizer, you can help make them more knowledgeable. And I'm sure you have yeah. insofar as you can. Yeah. And I think, you know, we talk about it in the sense that we do have, we've had town halls, we've put out information. At this point, you know, it's the law. And so a lot of the conversations have been, this is federal law. <laughs> you know, it's, this is, this is required. Because I mean, there was some of that. Why? Why aren't you guys fighting it? Why aren't you doing this? You know, this this union sued that thing. And when you really looked into it, that's not what was happening. You know, there's to not get too nerdy about it, but you know, a lot of unions have needed to do what's called impact bargaining. And the reason that has come up is that you know these are low wage workers with almost no vacation time, and they've had to burn up whatever they had in COVID quarantines when they're making like fourteen, fifteen, sixteen an hour. Vanessa Veselka, along with doing all this work during COVID, have you been working on another novel? 
No, I haven't. I'm about to start. I know enough from doing you, you know, organizing before that, and also from my own personality, which I've already said is kind of obsessive. Whatever I do, I'm, I'm doing that 110%. So when I stepped into this work, I knew that I was going to take a couple of years off from writing and I was going to do this 110%. And now I'm stepping out and I'm going to do writing 110%. (laughs) You spend a tremendous amount of time and it's obvious in your work getting every word right. A lot of writers don't do that. And it's particularly clear in great offshore grounds, but it's also there in Zazen. The writers I know who do that tend to focus on short stories. And so I'm, I'm just wondering, why isn't Vanessa Veselka writing more short stories? So it's funny. I went to McDowell once, like I got a fellowship to go to McDowell. And it was right literally at the beginning of me trying to write Offshore Grounds. I had a month. So I decided to make it an experiment, which is, you know, I was now in the perfect environment, you know, with no obstructions to time or anything like that. So if I wrote every day and I divided that day count by 30, you know, divided by 30, I would know how many words I wrote a day. So I knew that. And at the same time, I decided to interview everybody there. And I found that without fail, the short story writers were writing about four to 600 a day, and that the fiction writers were writing in the thousands most days. That you might find the binge writers who do 10,000 in like two days. I put 1,200, I put 2,000 a day as my you know, output. So they were writing much more cover that space. And when I when I finally did the numbers on what I wrote a day, it was 666, which was funny for its own reasons. But what I realized is, oh, I understand the problem. I'm a novelist, but I write at the pace of a short story writer. No wonder this hurts. <laughs> That's exactly what I felt like. No wonder this hurts. <laughs> um, so why do I not write short stories? You know, I've written some. I always think I'm going to go back and write more short stories. And I will go back and write more short stories. But a lot of times I start to write, you know, I just love the novel. I love the novel. You know, I want to write a few more short stories. It would be good for my career if I wrote more short stories, meaning I could just sort of continue to put them out there in pieces or do collections while I'm working on other things. But, you know, we'll see what happens. But uh, I'm aiming for that novel again. Will your essays ever be collected? Possibly. Possibly. You've been listening to an interview with Vanessa Veselka. Zazen is now out in a trade paperback from Vintage, as is her most recent novel, The Great Offshore Grounds. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. And feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>